0: The rest of us, we are going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. This series that we have in Colossians, it's, it's entitled The Foundations of the Believer's Life. And part of the reason why I believe Pastor came up with that title is because it, we're trying to come to grips with what the scriptures teach about who God is, what salvation is, the life we've been called to. And as we do these things, it, it strips away um, man-made religion that tends to pervert the pure and true gospel that is taught throughout scripture. And I think, you know, when I say man-made religion, a lot of times we tend to think of stuff out there like, yeah, those people believe this or they believe that. Uh, but in reality, we all have stuff that, that we've kind of created in our own minds that, that we add to the gospel. And those are the things that I think we need to focus on. And, and one of those things, if, if I was just to give you an example, oftentimes whenever, fall into temptation and then you end up sinning in some sort of way, and then you repent and you ask God to forgive you, you understand that you've been forgiven. But at at that point, a lot of times we're like, okay, well, I want to show God that I really mean it, so I'm going to make sure I do these things in light of this repentance that I'm offering to God, right? I want to make sure I can check these boxes to, to prove that that's, that repentance and forgiveness that he's offered me is 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 valid. And and the issue that we tend to run in with that is our, our trust goes from Christ forgiving us of our sins and dying for those things on the cross to these works that we're doing in order to try to present these things back to God. And and that's an issue, right? That's that's man made religion. That's us adding to the work that God did when He told us to confess our sins to Him and He is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Right? So that that's where that there's a thin line there because we all do it, right? We want to prove to each other when we're sorry. We want to prove to God when we're sorry, but God has only told us to look to him and trust in him and what he has done for us to, to free us from that sin, to, to, um, for him paying for that sin for us. But like I said, that's a trait that we all carry within ourselves, and, and this is a trait that carried into the church in Colossae. Now, we're not going to get into what they were dealing with. That doesn't come until chapter 2 and it's the, the term asceticism, right? We're not going to have a pop quiz where I'm going to ask you to spell it or define it, but uh, asceticism is basically the, the thought of, like, a, a monkish mentality where people are like, you know what, I'm going to strip my, my life of worldly pleasures and desires. I'm not going to eat sweets or whatever in order to try to gain this higher understanding of who God is, and that's essentially what was going on uh, for these people, and the reason I bring that up in light of, these foundational truths that we see is because what Paul prayed for the people in Colossae, what we preached on the last two weeks, kind of sets the tone for that, right? These are the foundational truths of the Christian life. As these people came in to pervert this, if it doesn't fit within those foundation, that foundation that, that Christ has given us, it's it's added to that. And And that's in his prayer. He says it in verses 9 and 10. He says, his prayer for them was that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will— in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, I think that's that's really important for us today. You know, that God has not called us to just blindly follow all the commands that, that we see in Scripture. He wants us to delight in him and delight in obeying him. That's, that's what he's desiring for us. This is told to us in Jeremiah 9:23 and 24. We're not to boast in riches or might or anything, but we're to boast in, in knowing this that God is a God who practices steadfast love and righteousness and justice throughout the earth. In these things uh, I am, I am, I delight. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to know him and serve him with, with all of our heart, all of our being. Now, as Paul is establishing this, right, as he's praying this prayer for them, for them to understand these foundational beliefs. Uh, we go into our passage, what we're kind of seeing today, which is our most important topic, um, God himself, who is God, right? That, that's the essential doctrine of our faith is who God is and what he has done to save us. And so what topic is that? Well, that's God and more specifically, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And so for the next two weeks, what we're gonna see in verses 15 through 20, today we're focusing on verse 15, um, is quite possibly, no pressure, brotherly. Uh, but the, I'm just kidding, I'm not going to say it's the most important, but it's this, this doctrine that's taught here in these next six verses is what separates us from every other religion. Every, every religion that's out there that's a false religion, in these verses, it separates us from them. And so, like I said, no pressure for next week, right? None, right? As long as we're preaching faithfully, God's going to take care of the rest. Uh, but that's what's going on here, right? We get to see Christ, who who he is. And so this week, what we're going to kind of focus on is Jesus's divinity, right? His God, his, uh, that he is God, and then his superiority. These are just two words that seem to work in what we are going to cover in this verse. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read our passage, and then we're going to break it into those two parts. There's so much here. I was telling my wife yesterday, like... Um, I, I'm, I'm real, I'm obviously I'm very wordy, but um, there's like so much in just these next couple of verses we could spend years here and never get to the bottom of it. But uh, for the time that I do have, I want to I honor God with it and I pray that it's, it ministers to us. So let me go ahead and read our verse for today. It's uh, Colossians 1 verse 15, and then we will pray and ask God to bless our time and we will get right into it. So this is the word of God, it says this, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. That is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and um, God, we are just thankful for you. Uh, your word is what brings life to us. It has been breathed out by you and is profitable for us. It is beneficial to our souls, to our lives, to our neighbors. Uh, with it, we we find out who you are and we get to Know you and and realize that in you we have everything. Uh, outside of it, uh, all of all of life is just fleeting. It's, it's in vain. So, Lord, we ask that you speak to us in this time. Uh, I pray that my um, time in your word this week, Lord, was uh, honoring to you, and that ultimately this this time blesses us all, uh, myself included. I mean, I, I need I need you just as much as everyone else in here. Does. Lord, may Your Word resonate in our hearts and encourage us, bring us peace and joy and comfort and all the things that we need. Uh, and so we ask for these things in Your Son Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so we're going to break this. Uh, me, break this up into two parts. Like I said, divinity and superiority. And we're going to look at that first half of the sentence um, and talk about Jesus' divinity. So, what does it mean for Jesus Christ to be the image of the invisible God, right, because if we think about that word image, um, we're made in the image of God, right, we, we read that in, in Genesis 1, uh, so what, is, what does this mean for Christ to be the image of the invisible God? Well, this word image here comes from a Greek word called, that's uh, pronounced icon, icon, right, which where we get our English word icon, right? If you, if you know what an icon is, or you, you've heard that phrase, you kinda, we kind of think of things like cultural icons or sports icons, right? Someone who's kind of um, either like exhibits greatness in their field or their craft, or their some sort of genius level in whatever they do, right? That's what we tend to think of when we think about an icon. There's someone like Michael Jordan, uh, you know, whoever. Whoever you want to throw in there, we kind of think of those as icons. And when we think about that, right, these are people within their realm, right, they, they exhibit and they when they perform, it's almost flawless, the things that they're able to do. You're, we're just in awe a lot of times of what these people are able to do on, on, the, on camera, on stage, or whatever. Unfortunately, in their private lives, not always the same case, right? Up in front of everyone, flawless, behind closed doors, very flawed. Right. Very flawed. And that's that's the biggest difference we see between cultural icons, sports icons, whatever, film icons and the icon that is Jesus Christ. Right. The image of the invisible God. Jesus has no skeletons in his closet. Right. Every every last one of us has something. But Jesus has has zero uh, for scripture tells us, for we do not have an high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15, right? Jesus is perfectly and definitionally the image of the invisible God. You can't get a better description of God outside of his word, right? And the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us tells us that. Amen? Now, all of us, right, we, we I, well, I'll say me personally. I'm a very visual learner, right? Someone could tell me what they want to do. I, I like seeing it written on paper or, or in front of me. I, I need to see something. And I think a lot of people think that way. And a lot of times when people are trying to describe who God is, we want to use something in creation to kind of say, well, when I think about God, I, I tend to think of him this way, right? I, I think of him like this or or like that, right? There people have said all kinds of things. And I, I do believe, Their intentions are in the right place, uh, but honestly, if we use anything outside of scripture, outside of who Christ is as he walked on this earth, any description we give of God is going to fall short. All of them, all of them are going to fall short because everything is creation and he is the creator. Hebrews describes Jesus this way as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Right, the exact imprint of his nature, in Jesus's nature, in his essence, he is truly God. Amen. He is truly God. <clears throat> when when we think about that, I you know, as I was studying on this through the week and kind of thinking through it, meditating upon it, it, it made me think. I don't I don't think about God enough. I, I don't think about these things enough. Uh, I don't think about that and then the implications of it enough. I, I, you know the fact that we serve an eternal God, one who has no equals, one who has no need of anything, who is perfect in every way, yet He was still willing to to enter His cursed creation in order to free us from the sin that we committed against Him. That's what God did for us, right? This God that has no need of us, right? He doesn't need our worship he doesn't need anything from us right we creation is cursed because of us and he still saw fit to enter his creation on our behalf i don't like i said i don't think about this enough i I get caught up in life i get caught up in the busyness of life uh my my personal struggles my the struggles of my loved ones the, the pain and and trials that we go through right these things weigh on us each and every day and and the reason for me, I'm a I'm a fixer, right? I like to fix things. I don't I don't tend to dwell on them. I'll just tell me what I need to do to fix it, right? I don't tend to have much empathy, right? As people are going, I just want to fix it for you. Let me let me fix this problem so you don't have to deal with it anymore. That that's where my mind goes. Um, I don't want to see you going through trials. I don't want to see you going through pain, right? I just I just want to fix it for you. What can I do to fix this? And the season that we're in right now as, as a church over the last month, right, has been lots of things going on that I can't fix personally, right? There's nothing I can do to fix these things. We we, I, we can't fix when people go to be with the Lord. We, there, there's nothing we can do about that um, as far as we can't bring them back to life, right? I, there, there's all these other things like Alicia being hospitalized and Sister Brenda, she's in ICU, right? Like, all kinds of stuff and then just struggles, the things that I know about that people are going through. I don't know everything, but the things that I do know, these are all difficult things to to bear these weights, right? These are all struggles that that hurt, right? To to feel them. And I was telling the guys on Thursday when we had our trade meeting about this, right? I'm I'm preparing for that lesson and like all these things are going on in the back of my mind. I'm like, I gotta put this lesson together, I gotta preach the gospel, I gotta like present it in a, in a loving way and compassionate way, passionate way. And I'm like, I'm not feeling it. I, I am like weighed down by these things. It's, I don't feel okay. Like I, I'm going to have to fake it when I get up there. I'm not going to do that. Like, how do I get from trusting in God and, and all that he's done, uh, f- from being in sorrow and, and mourning for these things? Like, how do, how do I get there? And so as I was, it was probably five or 10 minutes before we started, I'm like going back through my lesson and I'm like pleading with God to help me. And uh, as I started find like kind of reading through the tail end of it, it's like, OK, these are these are things that, that I am putting my people through. And the only duty I have as as a as an individual is to serve, to pray, to lean on God, not my own understanding, to trust in him, acknowledge him in all my ways. And he's going to make my path straight. Uh, I, I can't fix these things for for people. I'm not called to god did not give me that power uh so removing this weight that i put on myself uh was was freeing so that i was able to present god's truth in the way that i'm supposed to right that that plank was removed from my by the uh, grace of god um but that doesn't that doesn't mean that these things can not be overwhelming right like going through these things it's a it's a lot like call coming in after call about this person dying or that person struggling with this or it's, it's a lot, right? It's it's a lot. But as we focus on God and who he is and what he has done for us, it, it's, as I, the pastor mentioned at, at the funeral, like his burden, uh, he's, uh, his yoke is easy and his burden is light, right? He's, he has given us a rest, a peace that surpasses understanding. He does all these things for us. He's not promising to take away these pains, but he has promised to be with us and to give us all that we need to get through bear that with one another and to serve one another Uh, so so yeah i was thanking the lord that i was granted this peace that uh that i didn't have right but the thing is what i must remember like we're talking about today jesus christ is the image of the invisible god not me right that's that's i'm made in the image of god but i am not the image of the invisible god right i am not the icon as this word describes that's that's the lord i am his servant And when this poor man cried, the Lord heard me and delivered me out of all of my fears. Amen. Jesus Christ is that picture perfect image of the invisible God. If we want to know who God is, more about him, why things are the way they are, there's only one way. Jesus Christ, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So that who, that's, who is, that's what it means by the image of the invisible God. That's what we see in the first half of this verse. Jesus is that image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, we've seen, right, we we talked about that, the, what the image means of this invisible God. Um, this is his divinity. Now we're going to talk about his superiority. Where does this come in? Why, how do you see superiority in the term firstborn? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Just give me a little time, we'll get there. Okay, so what, is, what does it mean, right? What does firstborn of all creation mean? Does it mean that someone's being born first, right? Because that's, that's what the word sounds like. Firstborn sounds like one being born first, right? And that's what some people believe. There are people who claim to be Christians out there that believe that Jesus is the first creation, right? Um, Jehovah's witnesses in particular, that, that's their belief. Jesus is the first thing created, Elevated above all creation, he's not God, but he's a God, and and he is he's at this place of prominence, but not quite with God, but higher than humans, higher than angels, right? He's kind of has that place, and this is one of their verses that they go to as a uh, proof text, right? Well, it says here he's a, he's the firstborn, right? So he is the firstborn of creation. Is that what this verse is saying, right? Is that what we read here? Because just on the surface, reading one verse, that's what it could sound like. <clears throat> well, obviously, that's not the case because we're not Jehovah's witnesses. Um, so what, what is this verse talking about, right? What are, we, what are we talking about? Is there any other meaning for this word firstborn? Like if we were to go back to image, right? There's multiple meanings of the word image. What that means, right? When we spoke of Christ and it's, he's the image of the invisible God, it had a, sp- a very specific meaning. But if we were to read somewhere else when image is used, uh, like Romans 8.29 that says that we are being conformed into the image of Christ. That's not saying that we're going to be made exactly like Christ, like we're going to be Christ. That's not what that means. It's it's being it's telling us that we're going to be glorified, right? We're not going to be deified. We're going to be glorified. We're going to no longer have to struggle with sin, and we're going to walk in in perfect obedience as Christ did, right? So there's a likeness that's there, not the exact thing, right? So what is the difference here with firstborn, right? Because it, it sounds like someone being born. Well, what does Paul mean? Right? We have to we have to figure out what Paul is trying to get across. That's how we understand context is what what was Paul meaning when he sent this letter to the Colossians? That's what's most important here. And what we do is we use scripture to interpret scripture. That that's it. We just use scripture to interpret scripture. We can anybody can come up with any kind of word study, historical study, quote sources, Quote other scriptures, and and you can come up with anything. I've heard hundreds of things about hundreds of different passages where you justify any sort of lifestyle, any sort of belief, any sort of rules. You can come up with anything if, if you take enough time, right? You can do any of that. But what's most consistent? That's what truly matters, right? If it's consistent from Genesis to Revelation, we know that it's true. If it's not, th- there's some there's some wrong there, okay? Because God is not a God of confusion, right? He is a God of order, of truth, and life, and so we go to his word to help us understand what's going on. So that's what we're going to do, right? So as we look at verse 15, what's the immediate context of verse 15? Well, it's verses 15 through 20. This is a paragraph. This is a passage that we're going to read and see if we can get a little more understanding of what is actually going on with this word firstborn. So let's read that real quick. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross or his cross. Now, I kind of emphasize certain phrases there to try to help us pick out some of the things that will help us understand what this word firstborn means. So, what do we read? Right? He said, Firstborn of all creation. He said all things were created through him and for him. He says he is before all things. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. Right. There's there's all these different phrases that are kind of helping us understand what's going away. Now, one thing that we conclude right away is the fact that it would be contradictory if God was a Jesus Christ was a uh, created thing. Right. If if everything was created through him, he was in the beginning everything was made through him and for him, how could he be the firstborn, right? If, if he's a creation, everything can't be created through him, right? If there's only two categories of creation and creator, right, once something is created, it becomes a creation, and therefore everything can't be made through it if that's part of creation, that's something that's being made. Okay, that's just simple logic, right? Uh, so what, what does it mean here? What does it mean by him being the... Um, Firstborn. Well, he's the beginning, which means that he's eternal. Um, what does it mean to be firstborn of the dead? Right. That that phrase may come across as him being the first person resurrected. Right. A lot of times people may say that we'll use the first one resurrected. Well, I think if we were to look through scripture, right, if we look through scripture, Jesus obviously wasn't the first person that was resurrected. Um, I don't know if that's a spoiler alert for anybody, but he resurrected Lazarus. Right. That's one. But if we go back to the Old Testament, there's a couple of different cases. Let me let me read some of those for you, because this was kind of I don't want to say like, this was kind of new to me. Some of them. So Elijah resurrected the widow's daughter. Right. He laid on him three times. And, and then the, the kid rose from the dead. He was dead. Then Elisha did the same thing. He, he um, resurrected a, a woman's son. Right. This is in First Kings, Second Kings. The one that I forgot about or maybe didn't even realize is in Second Kings 13. This is when Elisha died, right, he's put in a tomb, he's been dead for a while because he's bones at this point, and as there was a battle, they threw, someone was dead, they threw him in the tomb of Elisha, and as that body touched his bones, the guy came back to life, right, yeah, shocker, yeah, same thing, right, so these are different instances where people were resurrected from the dead, um, also, when Jesus died on the cross, the tombs opened, and a bunch of people came out of their tombs that were they had resurrected as well so we get all these different accounts of people resurrecting from the dead okay so if we think about the firstborn from the dead it can't mean the first person resurrected if all these other people were resurrected as well so that leads me to the question if it doesn't mean the firstborn what can this mean right if it's not the actual chronological birth order what else could it mean well glad you asked it's the other meaning could be or is uh, position or rank, right? When you think position or rank, right? A, a place of superiority. Now, I'm a firstborn, I'm the firstborn son of my mom, right? And uh, that's a place of prominence for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but in, in realistically, right? When you think of firstborn children, right? When you think of that, right? We tend to be leaders. And a little bossy. Uh, we tend to be protectors, but also overbearing. Uh, we tend to be doers and busybodies, right? It's a little bit of both. We, we tend to, there's the good and the bad. You got to take it or leave it, right? But that, that's where we tend to be as, as firstborn. That tends to be uh, where, where we sit, just kind of psychologically, just naturally. We tend to be there. Uh, and, and so this isn't me making some sort of argument for what this firstborn means, but I think as we think about words having multiple meanings, right, we can kind of wrap our minds around just even the firstborn son in a chronological sense, there is some natural leadership qualities that kind of um, come with that, that role. But what I'd like to say is, um, as far as the, the understanding of what's going on here, right, as it being a, a positional rank of leadership, a, a, a supreme rank of leadership. I think we see this in scripture where it, it this firstborn phrase is kind of like a, an, an, an exalted or a prominent, what's another word I can use, like a, just a superior, a role of superiority, right, a, a, a high position. So let me, let me give you some examples of this. Uh, Exodus chapter 4 is, is one example that we see. And here in Exodus 4, this is when uh, God is speaking to Moses, and he's telling him to go to Pharaoh, let my people go, and, and he says this about the firstborn. Listen to what he says in verses 21 through 23. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, is God saying here that Israel is chronologically or literally his firstborn son? No, that's not what he's referring to here. Now, if you think about it, Adam was the first son of God, right? That was his first creation. Um, So we know he's not referring to firstborn in that sense. But when we think about salvation and how God offers salvation, it came first to the Jews and then the Greeks, right? Then the Gentiles. So there was this place of prominence uh, with the Jewish people that they, they, had, they were, if you will, the apple of God's eye, right? They were his chosen race, his royal priesthood. They were his holy nation of, of his own possession, right? That's the, the role that they played um, in his plan of salvation for his people. Another example is Job 18, verses 11 through 13. Here's another example of this word firstborn being used. Uh, this is Bildad, Bildad? Bildad speaking uh, about the, the punishment that God pours out on the wicked. This is 11 through 13. Listen to what he says. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. Now, you're thinking about the firstborn of death, that seems like a weird phrase if death is giving birth to something else. So is this speaking of the grim reaper coming and and laying out death amongst the people? I don't think that's what's going on, but what this is speaking of, if it's speaking of God's wrath... What we get to see is this is God saying wrath in its fullness. It's it's supreme the supreme wrath of God. The pinnacle of God's wrath is being poured out upon the wicked. Right? He is not uh, pulling any punches at this point. It is a it is as it is as wrathful as it could be. Right? The firstborn of death it consumes his limbs. This is what this is speaking of. Uh, and then one more. We got one more here. Isaiah 14 verses 29 through 30. Here's another example of this term firstborn being used says this, Rejoice not, O uh, Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. And the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. Now, when we think about this, and we think in light of firstborn, is this referring to Poor people's first child, right? Is is that what this is referring to? Or is this referring to the most destitute? The 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 least of these, right? Is is that is it those he's speaking of, right? When Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first, does it have that sort of connotation to it? I, I, I believe it does. When it speaks of these heightened sense, when he's using this term uh, firstborn, it's it's in this sense of like increasing the um the place of prominence, right? It, it's it's even worse, right? It's the, it's the worst of the poor um, that we see here. So seeing these examples, right, of firstborn being used, if you were to do a word search on firstborn, it's going to be used for geneal- genealogy type of things, like the firstborn was Esau for uh, Isaac. Um, firstborn is used all over the place, but in specific context, you can see that it's used in different instances. It's not just chronologically speaking of, the firstborn, but it's also speaking of some other, you know, like a place of prominence in, in, in another sense. So I think when we think about the way it's, we see this uh, in, in the Old Testament, the way that, um, that Paul is using it here, I think this helps us to understand that the terminology isn't speaking of birth order, but a, a place of prominence. And I, I believe this would be consistent, right, if this is after the cross, Paul is writing these things. This would be consistent with what Jesus said in Matthew 28, right? When he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? He is, he is at that place of prominence, right? These two things would coincide with one another, right? If he has been given all authority, everything is under his control, right? He has the supreme position of authority and rank over his creation, right? He is the uh, firstborn of all creation. Now, even in that sense, I I don't know if I'm boring you with uh, apologetic approaches to these things, but even if we were to go to ancient Israel, and you were to think about firstborn, right? Esau was the firstborn, and uh, Reuben was the firstborn, right? All these places like that, even in those senses, they would take the, um, the bulk or the primary of their father's estate, right? Whenever their fathers passed, the firstborn was the one that had the place of prominence. So even in that sense, when we look back in ancient Israel, the firstborn had that position. Not only was he the firstborn, but he had this role of prominence. And I think it's important to consider as we get further and further away from the cross, a lot of times these um, false religions that pervert the gospel, that try to create a different Christ, uh, these things come out, but the original hearers of this would have not considered Jesus being some um, firstborn creation. They would have known that he was Christ, right? The the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, right? All these things that are spoken of by Paul are clearly laying out what who Christ is, that he's not some created being that's uh, like a demigod or some elevated angel or, or anything like that, right? He is very God of very God, right? Truly God, uh, truly man. That's who Christ is, right? And, and they wouldn't have considered anything other than that. Now, when we think about This who this is who Jesus Christ is, right? He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, right? He has his place of prominence. He has his place of superiority. Uh, He is actually God. Why does all this matter, right? As far as what I'm telling you, why does it matter? What 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 importance does it have? Why do I need to know these things? I think that's the the big takeaway for us, right? If if you if we're getting caught up in these um, dialogues or Uh, apologetic style interactions with with different people. We've kind of lost sight of what's most important because it's we can articulate these things well or better than I can and still lose sight of what truly matters, right? None of this stuff means anything if when I leave here today, it doesn't affect the way that I I live my life, right? It doesn't cause me to love God more, serve him better, uh, bless his people. None of this matters if if it's just information in our head so what what is the big takeaway take for us well if you don't remember anything else right that's said today this is the one thing that you must cling to the one thing that you must remember Jesus is God plain and simple he, he is God it's not that that's not some nebulous out there concept that we just say he is God right he, he's God and i I've, that is the, the, the big thing, right? He is the image of the invisible God. We want to know what God looks like. We find him in his word and we see that it's Jesus Christ. That's, that's what we look to. That's what's most important for us because life is going to get hard, right? Bills are going to be late. People are going to be hurting. People are going to offend you. All kind of stuff is going to happen, right? All these things wane and, and, and they're fleeting. All, all of life is turbulence and, and all these different things. he's the one consistent thing that we have in this life right so as as anything is stressing you out troubling you uh, there's things that you can't seem to get past Uh, you can't overcome these things whatever it is look to christ because he is the image of the invisible god that's that's what's most important for us we find hope in jesus christ and in him alone Right? As the song said, some trust in horses, some in chariots, right? but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's, that's it. And like I said, we lose sight of this because we focus on the here and now. We're focused on the things that we see, not the things that are unseen. But the thing is, nothing else will quench that thirst. Nothing else can fill that void. No one else can grant you the peace that you're searching for everything else will eventually disappoint you and everyone else at some point will let you down everyone because they're not meant to they're not meant to hold you up that's that's not their purpose right we're vessels and and what what gets poured out of us is the source of life jesus christ right that's that's the aroma that's the the image that we're bearing that's what we put forth that's what we share with one another it has nothing to do with us, right? We are the willing vessels uh, proclaiming his truth, right? Jesus Christ and him crucified. So cling to Christ, right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Trust in him, find him in his word, and find peace, hope, joy, and comfort through it all. Let's pray.